Hello, my name is Hassan Sorrells, and this is the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast, episode number 66, with my guest co-host today, J.P. Puchulu. How are you doing, J.P.? Doing fantastic. And today's book, we're going to open from Man's Search for Meaning by Victor E. Frankel. And I quote, when one examines the vast amount of material which has been amassed as a result of many prisoners' observations and experiences, three phases of the inmate's mental reactions to camp life become apparent. The period following his admission, the period when he is well entrenched in camp routine, and the period following his release and liberation. The symptom that characterizes the first phase is shock. Under certain conditions, shock may even precede the prisoner's formal admission to the camp. I shall give, as an example, the circumstances of my own admission. 1,500 persons had been traveling by train for several days and nights. There were 80 people in each coach. All had to lie on top of their luggage, the few remnants of their personal possessions. The carriages were so full that only the top parts of the windows were free to let in the gray of dawn. Everyone expected the train to head for some munitions factory in which we would be employed as forced labor. We did not know whether we were still in Silesia or already in Poland. The engine's whistle had an uncanny sound like a cry for help sent out in commiseration for the unhappy load which it was destined to lead into perdition. Then the train shunted, obviously nearing a main station. Suddenly a cry broke from the ranks of the anxious passengers. There's a sign, Auschwitz. Everyone's heart missed a beat at that moment. Auschwitz, the very name stood for all that was horrible. Gas chambers, crematoriums, massacres. Slowly, almost hesitatingly, the train moved on as if it wanted to spare its passengers the dreadful realization as long as possible. Auschwitz. With the progressive dawn, the outlines of an immense camp became visible. Long stretches of several rows of barbed wire fences, watchtowers, searchlights, and long columns of ragged human figures, gray in the grayness of dawn, trekking along the straight, desolate roads to what destination we did not know. There were isolated shouts and whistles of command. We did not know their meaning. My imagination led me to see gallows with people dangling on them. I was horrified, but this was just as well because step by step, we had become accustomed to a terrible and immense horror. Eventually, we moved into the station. The initial silence was interrupted by shouted commands. We were to hear those rough, shrill tones from then on over and over again in all the camps. Their sound was almost like the last cry of a victim, and yet there was a difference. It had a rasping hoarseness as if it came from the throat of a man who had to keep shouting like that, a man who was being murdered again and again. The carriage doors were flung open and a small detachment of prisoners stormed inside. They wore striped uniforms, their heads were shaved, but they looked well-fed. They spoke in every possible European tongue and all with a certain amount of humor, which sounded grotesque under the circumstances. Like a drowning man clutching straw, my inborn optimism, which has often controlled my feelings, even in the most desperate situations, clung to this thought. These prisoners look quite well. They seem to be in good spirits and even laugh. Who knows? I might manage to share their favorable position. In psychiatry, there is a certain condition known as delusion of reprieve. The condemned man, immediately before his execution, gets the illusion that he might be reprieved at the last minute. We, too, clung to shreds of hope and believed to the last moment that it would not be so bad. 
Just the sight of the red cheeks and round faces of those prisoners was a great encouragement. Little did we know then that they formed a specially chosen elite who for years had been the receiving squad for new transports as they rolled into the station day after day. They took charge of the new arrivals and their luggage, including scarce items and smuggled jewelry. Auschwitz must have been a strange spot in this Europe of the last years of the war. There must have been unique treasures of gold and silver, platinum and diamonds, not only in the huge storehouses, but also in the hands of the SS. Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl ranks, possibly, in the top five globally of narratives that examines the fundamental nature of totalitarianism, suffering, and meaning. Um, in my opinion, it sits right next to the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, The Rape of Nanking by Irish Chang, and Night by Eli Weisel as a testament to the problems, the challenges, the failures of a nihilistic worldview when genuine totalizing evil manifests itself in the world. Now, we've talked about the Gulag Archipelago um, in episode number 16, uh, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. And Man's Search for Meaning is a complement or a, a bookend, right, to that study, particularly for leaders. Usually, we talk about the author a little bit later on in the podcast, but I want to front load some of this so you understand what we're dealing with here today. Victor Frankel was born in March of 1905, and he died September of 1997, so he lived throughout almost the entire 20th century. As a Jewish-Austrian teenager, he started corresponding with Sigmund Freud and eventually studied medicine at the University of Vienna in 1923. In 1937, he began a private practice, but the Nazi annexation of Austria in 1938 ensured that his path would lead directly to the Theodenstadt concentration camp. Surviving the horrors of a totalitarian system designed to grind a person out of existence while also draining the last bit of will to work out of him was only one of the several degradations Frankel directly witnessed and survived to write a record of. By the way, there's some controversy with Frankel, and if you go and look up, up online, you will see it about whether or not he was a collaborator with the Nazis, whether or not some of the things he did in the concentration camp around um, doing surgeries, which he was not qualified for on Jewish prisoners, was in itself a war crime. And there are some Jewish survivors who critiqued Frankel's description of what had happened to him in Man's Search for Meaning and found it wanting. I'll leave you to go and determine if Frankel was a fabulist or if he was something else. We are going to take him seriously and we're going to take his search for meaning seriously. And today we're going to focus on how you get meaning by focusing on Frankel's experiences that he wrote in his own words in the concentration camps. And we're going to do that today on the podcast with a listener to the podcast. Yes, if you listen to the podcast, you too can potentially get on as a guest co-host. Um, and we'll be unwrapping Viktor Frankl's attempt to address totalitarian evil 
in light of an absence of an appeal to God in transcendence and exploring what that approach means for leaders, followers, and all of us in the West in the 21st century with our guest today, like I said, and an avid listener of the podcast, J.P. Puchaloo. So J.P., after that long intro, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about you and why you're here to talk about this book today? All right. Well, thanks for having me on, Hasan. This is, uh, to me, it's a very important book. Um, to me, uh, there are two books that have really had substantial impact in my life. And uh, this is certainly one of the two. Um, and I like books a lot. Um, I like to just kind of see like how they all kind of come together. And I think of this book a lot as I'm reading other books. I think of this book a lot as things come up in my life. So I wanted to just start by telling you a couple of stories. Uh, there were two separate instances where the book just had really deep impact on me. Um, so, so the first one is back in 2008. So back in 2008, I owned a mortgage company and I had some expenses. I had loan officers, I had a processor, um, and I was going into something. I didn't know what it was in the beginning of 2008. I sure found out what it was at the end of 2008, but I kind of started seeing things. Well, I'd say way back in 2006, but in 2007, uh, you know, the whole thing with Bear Stearns happened. That was really one of the first dominoes to fall in the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's when I started to see the potential of things going bad. Well, what ended up happening was it was a lot worse than many people thought. Other people who had been, you know, crying, the sky is falling, were proven right. <laughs> the sky fell and uh, it felt like it fell right on top of me <laughs> back in 2008. Um, so I went into this thing um, I was, uh, so I had my mortgage company and I also had started a networking group. It was a part of the BNI franchise uh, networking group. And I knew how bad it was going to get at one point. Mm -hmm. um, and I had uh, uh, this book here to bring me through that because again you know you read this book you read about what he had gone through and it just brings perspective to you right i'm not there what i have to go through in the next months in the next years i'm not there i can get through this so that was the the first uh, the, the first time, and the second time was you know fast forward a few years, and it's 2011, and uh, events 
had had gone and and taken me to uh being at the lowest level at a very small cpa firm mm -hmm. trying to learn accounting trying to learn uh tax my life kind of sucked <laughs> because in order to achieve what I wanted to achieve, right? I'm not, I'm not a, a numbers guy per se. I, my, my thinking was I will at some point own a CPA firm and other people will do the tax work, do the, uh, the accounting work. But here I was having to learn it. I was uh, taking classes for an MBA and I was studying for the CPA exam, Oof, okay. which is brutal. I mean, the failure rate is uh, there's four exams and each one of them has a failure rate of around 50%. One, I think just under 50 and the other three, just over 50. And I'm not that smart, <laughs> you know? So it was hard. It was a lot. It was every single weekday uh, commuting for two, two and a half hours, going to work, mm -hmm. getting back, uh, trying to study, and then the weekend studying. So things really did suck. And this gentleman came into my office and... Um, he needed he he's from Spain and he needed someone to help him with his taxes. And uh, he found me because I had done a little bit, you know, with our website about how I speak Spanish. I was born in Chile. Mm -hmm. uh, so I speak Spanish. And this 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 gentleman uh, proceeds to tell me his story about his son and why he is in the United States. Mm -hmm. The reason he was in the United States was because his son, just a couple months before, was fine. Everything was fine. A few months before, everything was fine. And then one day he got sick. He brought his son to the, uh, to the doctor. Fast forward, I don't know, like a week or two. And the doctor tells him, this kind of brain cancer is very aggressive and there's really nothing that we can do. Now this gentleman's name is Ricardo and he's very public about his story. So I can share his, his name uh, publicly and his information publicly, uh, or at least this part of it anyway. <laughs> um, so he's telling me the story and he's telling me other stories in this story about how, you know, uh, what he did was he got on the phone, talked to different hospitals throughout the country, uh, came across the children's hospital, Dana-Farber, and they said, you know, um, we've seen things like this before. Why don't you send us, uh, you know, everything you have? So he sent everything. And they told him, bring him here. We have seen this type of aggressive cancer. Um and you know bring him here and 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 there is hope so he brought him here and he tells me some other stories about how he uh his son richie 
um, was, and, and this is something that I remember thinking about uh, with Viktor Frankl, not right there, but later after he told me the story, Viktor Frankl talked about the possibility of suffering heroically. Mm -hmm. uh, it's some, it, it was a theme that I had back in 2008 and I was, mm -hmm. I wanted to suffer heroically, you know? Um, so he tells me the story about how his son, they, they went to the hospital, him and his wife, and uh, he took, uh, Richie took his mother's purse, went into the bathroom and uh, came out uh, with face makeup like a clown. Because mm -hmm. he wanted to make the, his parents happy and he wanted to bring a smile to his face. And he did. Yeah. And Ricardo's telling me this story and I'm fighting back tears. I mean, it was just really gut-wrenching to hear his story and hear how he's here in the United States and he's doing everything that he possibly can to save his son's life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as I had mentioned, my life sucked for that moment in time. But that story sure did bring some perspective. So I revisited Viktor Frankl and his man's search for meaning to gain some perspective. So that Perspect is why it's on my top two. <laughs> <laughs> so perspective, right? You, you mentioned that uh, a couple of times in both of those stories, right? Um, both in the example from 2008 and the example from uh, from 2011. Um, one of the things that we are going to talk about today is um, perspective. We are going to address that. We're also going to address sort of what do you do when cancer shows up, right? Or what do you do when the entire economy collapses and you've got to feed your family and you don't have the skill sets to do it? Um, what do you do when as in the case of Viktor Frankl, um, your entire society has been along a path towards collapse, at least for your group. But you thought, as many Jewish folks did in the 1920s and in the 1930s, oh, it won't get to be that bad here. All the way up even, and, and Frankl talks about this, and he's not the only one, Eli Weisel talks about this, many survivor Many Jewish concentration camp survivor stories uh, mention this, as do, quite frankly, many stories of the Soviet gulags uh, mention this as well, most notoriously. Um, they say that, well, this won't, this can't happen to me, or this won't happen here, or I will be the, the last one, or somehow the system, somehow the process will overlook me. I, I won't be touched by this. Um, I think we have to directly address that idea as leaders, not to be, you know, sort of um, sky is falling, chicken little kind of people, right? But to give perspective, right? There are some things that can destroy your society. There are some things that can destroy your world. Cancer of a child destroys your world. Yeah. Um, that's when that's when natural evil shows up. <laughs> um and of course we want to go, well, who do you blame for that? Or, or who's at fault? And sometimes things just happen, right? Sometimes circumstances just are. And then there's other places where there is someone to blame, 
there is someone at the top of the hierarchy. There are a bunch of people who have followed along because it worked for them. And now the edifice, the the brick is falling on your head, JP, or my head, Hasan, right? How do you lead people? How do you lead yourself? Um, because we are a leadership podcast. So what, what does leadership look like in those kinds of contexts? And both of your stories sort of reveal that. Um, this idea of suffering heroically, let, let me ask you a little bit about that. What does that actually mean for you? Like break that down for us, right? Because for me, suffering heroically might mean something different. For our listeners, suffering heroically might mean something different. Um, there's a lot of talk in our culture right now um, around stoicism, which I find to be fascinating. Um, in fact, and, and stoicism is all about suffering heroically. Um, a couple of generations back, it was Buddhism. <laughs> this idea of suffering heroically through Buddhism. Now we've switched over to stoicism. Uh, which I find to be fascinating. But what does it mean for you to suffer heroically? What does that actually mean? Yeah, I I can talk to that. I mean, um, I had read Meditations, uh, Marcus Aurelius, before that. Um, so so I went in I I went into this situation determined to to suffer heroically. Right back in two thousand and eight, um, I was I was meditating at the time. So I felt just really well prepared, I think. It, it, that meditation that I was doing uh, really helped me to prepare for it. And, and I went into it like I was dying, like I was getting my affairs in order, right? Because mm -hmm. I was gonna have to leave my BNI group. This was a group of people I absolutely loved. There's about 35 of them. I was gonna have to leave the, the group. Uh, and I had to tell them that I was going to leave and let them know because they had no idea that I was going through this thing, mm -hmm. right? So I was ready to, 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 to do all that. But, you know, how long does that last? How long can you suffer for heroically? I mean, I, you know, you mentioned in the beginning of, of the podcast here about some people maybe judging some things that Viktor Frankl may or may not have done, mm -hmm. right? Until you are in that situation, you cannot judge, right? There are some things that I had to do that perhaps were not let's say they may have been in the gray area of ethics, right? Okay. Because I had to feed my family. I had two small kids. Mm -hmm. I had my wife who until that point wasn't working because she was taking care of the kids. Mm -hmm. um, I was trying to get a job before becoming an accountant mm -hmm. uh, and didn't know what I wanted to do before I decided to become an accountant. Mm -hmm. And I would go onto, I uh, was it monster board or something like that back then. Mm -hmm. And uh, that there would be jobs that I felt I was, that, that might be a good job for me. Mm -hmm. There were multiple of them that said, we are not taking resumes from people uh, coming from the mortgage industry at this time, because right. the, the, the market was flooded with us. Because right. there were no more mortgage brokers, uh, completely obliterated. Uh, 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 I think 95% of them were just gone. Um, 
So it was just a tough, tough thing. So how long does that heroism last, right? Um, I wasn't medit. I couldn't meditate anymore. I could not sit there and 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 have it not be excruciating mm-hmm. to just sit there with and, and and try to get rid of my thoughts. And uh, I didn't have any time to myself. So so that heroism that I felt, you know, I mean, it was silent. I wasn't, hey, I'm a hero. It was it was just okay. I, I want to go into this the right way. It wasn't like that, especially toward the the end, right? When when you're you're doing things that you're not proud of, when you're doing things where you don't have any time to yourself, it just doesn't last. Um, so again, I think that judgment there, that piece is is one that that I really want people to think about when they're ready to judge. I don't know if I answered your question and I went well, down the path that you wanted me to. Well, it's interesting that you well, it's interesting that you bring up gray area and principles. I, I think that's interesting. And and we'll get back to the book in a moment here. Um, but I want to flesh this out a little bit because um I'm a movie guy, right? So there's this great line in um in Braveheart where uh the syphilitic old man is talking to Robert the Bruce, his syphilitic father, right? And he's like, you know, Robert Bruce is talking about how he wants to go off and follow Mel Gibson, right? And he wants to go off and be heroic, right? In that kind of way. And uh, his father tells him, you know, what is it? Four generations of Bruce's, I'm paraphrasing here, um, have passed you land and title because they didn't go off and fight. You know, it's easy to admire uncompromising men, but it is precisely our ability to compromise that makes us, that makes us basically more principled, right? Makes us better. And when you talk about the gray area, I think about that line there because there are people and I'll, I'll go, I'll also, I'll sort of go on the opposite end of this. Um, there are people who during COVID stuck to their principles, regardless of what you may think about where their principles came from. And let's talk about, let's specifically go to it. Let's go to the, the vaccine, right? There are people who were like, no, I'm not taking that period. Full stop. I don't care if it costs me, um, a Wimbledon seat. I don't care if it costs me um, money or time. Uh, this is the thing that I'm not going to do, right? That's principle. And it's easy to admire uncompromising principled people, particularly in a time of chaos, chaotic evil, right? Those people stand out like a, like a shining light because, quite frankly, many people do compromise. They do. They go into the gray areas, right? Um, I think people want to be heroic. And when push comes to shove, and Franco will talk a little bit about this too, but so does, so does, so does um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. The people with the, the people with the belief all the way down into the concrete, right? The people who are who will say like um, what's his name did um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Christian apologist during um, during World War II, who was not Jewish, he was Lutheran German, who spoke out against Hitler, who wound up in the concentration camps and was hung two months before the Allies came and liberated that concentration camp. He went all the way to the end. Those people are rare. 
because the vast majority of people are going to compromise. They're going to compromise with, in the case of the Nazis or the Soviets, they're going to compromise, right? They're going to compromise with the system to feed their family or to do the things that they need to do. Um, they're going to compromise to get ahead. They're going to compromise to, uh, well, to lead fundamentally maybe a little bit later on. Like I think of Pablo Picasso. He's a perfect example. That dude was never touched by the Nazis ever, even though his art was was degenerate, right? Yet somehow he never wound up in a concentration camp and nothing ever happened to him. Matter of fact, he got wealthier after the war by denouncing all of his opponents as being um, as being Nazis <laughs> in in French communist um, or communist France at the time, and was just and got all of his 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 art enemies and critics like cobbled off because at the time, like if you were a Nazi or had been a former Nazi or have any whiff of Nazism next to you, you were done. And he sold everybody out and he wound up being Pablo Picasso for the next 30 years. It's easier to be Pablo Picasso than it is to be Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And we need to figure out why that is and how hard is it to get principles. And that's one of the things on this podcast that I, 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 we explore, not I, we explore a lot, but that I'm really interested in is why is it hard to be principled? Um, and of course, this idea from Bob Dylan, you're going to serve somebody, right? You're going to serve something, either going to serve your stomach or your principles <laughs> or your family or the world or God, right? If we're going to go transcendent, um, you're going to serve something. You're not going to just serve nothing. And that is also a challenge that Frankel puts forth to us in the book. So there's some ideas there that we're going to get into in the podcast and um, we'll circle back to that principles idea because that's, that is at the core, I think of suffering heroically. I also think it's at the core of a lot of what's happening right now with stoicism in our culture, because people are looking for those principles. People are looking for that thing that's rock solid all the way down because we've, we've done a really good job of scrubbing Christianity from our public square, at least in a, um, at least in a, in a structural uh, way in the, in, in the West in particular, in the United or the West in general, in the United States in particular. Now, whether that that's a good thing or a bad thing, we can have that discussion and many people do, but we've done a really good job of moving that away. And that vacuum is now being filled up or has been filled up for quite some time by other things. Um, and stoicism is just the latest, the latest thing. I remember in the early 20th, 21st century, the new atheists, right? Christopher Hitchin and Richard Dawkins and all those guys, they were going to, they were going to build us a new world too. Um, and then Christopher Hitchens died with all of his principles intact too. Back to the book, back to Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Uh, by the way, I always mention this in, in, in the, close to the beginning. So the the edition that we are reading, um, my edition is probably different from JP's, it's probably different than yours. Um, there's been over a hundred million different uh, printings of this book. So you've probably got a version that's different than the one that I have. Oh, but it was first published in Austria in 1946. Um, and this translation that I am reading was first published by Beacon Press in 1959. So this is, uh, this is actually pretty fairly close um, to, I think, the original publication, not I think, but to the original publication. Um, and um, under, it was published under the auspices of, and I thought this was very interesting, I actually underlined it in my copy, um, Beacon Press books are published under the auspices of the Unitarian Universalist Association, which if you know anything about the Unitarians, that should probably not surprise you, okay, um, that, they would, uh, that they would publish this. Um, 
But back to the book, back to my edition, the Washington Square Press edition, published in 1959, of Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And I quote, because of the high degree of undernourishment which the prisoners suffered, it was natural that the desire for food was the major primitive instinct around which a mental life centered. Let us observe the, ma the majority of prisoners when they happened to work near each other and were, for once, not closely watched. They would immediately start discussing food. One fellow would ask another working next to him in the ditch what his favorite dishes were. Then they would exchange recipes and plan the menu for the day when they would have a reunion, the day in a distant future when they would be liberated and return home. They would go on and on, picturing it all, picturing it all in detail until suddenly a warning was passed down the trench, usually in the form of a special password or number. The guard is coming. I always regarded the discussions about food as dangerous. Is it, wrong, is it not wrong to provoke the organism with such detailed and effective pictures of delicacies when it has somehow managed to adapt itself to extremely small rations and low calories? Though it may afford a momentary psychological relief, it is an illusion which physiologically surely must not be without danger. During the later part of our imprisonment, the daily ration consisting of a very watery soup given out once daily and the usual small bread ration. In addition to that, there was so the so-called extra allowance consisting of three-fourths of an ounce of margarine or of a slice of poor quality sausage or of a little piece of cheese or a bit of synthetic honey or a spoonful of watery jam varying daily. In calories, this diet was absolutely inadequate, especially taking into consideration our heavy manual work and our constant exposure to the cold in inadequate clothing. The sick were under quote-unquote special care, that is, those who were allowed to lie in their huts instead of leaving the camp for work were even worse off. When the last layers of subcutaneous fat had vanished, we looked like skeletons disguised with skin and rags. We could watch our bodies beginning to devour themselves. The organism digested its own protein and the muscles disappeared. Then the body had no powers of resistance left. One after another, the members of the little community in our hut died. Each of us would calculate with fair accuracy whose turn would be next and when his own would come. After many observations, we knew the symptoms well, which made the correctness of our prognosis quite certain. He won't last long, or this is the next one, we whispered to each other. And when, during our daily search for lice, we saw our own naked bodies in the evening, we thought alike, this body here, my body, is really a corpse already. What has become of me? I am but a small portion of a great mass of human flesh, of a mass behind barbed wire crowded into a few earthen huts, a mass of which daily a certain portion begins to rot because it has now become lifeless. I mentioned above how unavoidable were the thoughts about food and favorite dishes which forced themselves into the consciousness of the prisoner whenever he had a moment to spare. Perhaps it can be understood then that even the strongest of us was longing for the time when he would have a fairly good food again, not for the sake of good food itself, but for the sake of knowing that the subhuman existence which had made us unable to think of anything other than food would at last cease. Those who had not gone through a similar experience can hardly conceive of the soul-destroying mental conflict and clashes of willpower which a famished man experiences. They can hardly grasp what it means to stand digging in a trench, listening only for the sirens to announce 9.30 or 10 a.m., the half-hour lunch interval, when bread would be rationed out as long as it was still available, repeatedly asking the foreman, if he wasn't a disagreeable fellow, what the time was, and tenderly touching a piece of bread in one's coat pocket. 
versus stroking it with frozen gloveless fingers then breaking off a crumb and putting it in one's mouth and finally with the last bit of willpower pocketing it again having promised oneself that morning to hold out till afternoon we could hold endless debates on the sense or nonsense of certain methods of dealing with the small bread ration which was given out only once daily during the latter part of our confinement there were two schools of thought one was in favor of eating up the ration immediately this had the twofold advantage of satisfying the worst hunger pangs for a very short time, at least once a day, and of safeguarding against possible theft or loss of the ration. The second group, which held with dividing the ration up, used different arguments. I finally joined their ranks. The most ghastly moment of the 24 hours of camp life was the awakening, when at a still nocturnal hour, the three shoal blows of a whistle tore us pitilessly from our exhausted sleep and from the longing in our dreams. We then began the tussle with our wet shoes into which we could scarcely force our feet, which were sore and swollen with edema. And there were the usual moans and groans about petty troubles, such as the snapping of wires, which replaced shoelaces. One morning, I heard someone whom I knew to be brave and dignified cry like a child because he finally had to go to the snowy marching grounds in his bare feet as his shoes were too shrunken for him to wear. In those ghastly minutes, I found a little bit of comfort. A small piece of bread, which I drew out of my pocket, and munched with absorbed delight. Big swings don't work. If you want to really knock over a civilization or a culture or even a family or even an individual, if you want to knock them over, if you really want to grind them down, and sociopaths and narcissists know this. So do good people, but they don't want to acknowledge it because they're good. If you really want to grind someone down, if you really want to destroy another human being, smash mouth incrementalism is the best way to go. Big swings don't work. It's the small everyday grind on a human being that turns human spirit into human dust. And by the way, we don't have to be in a concentration camp to see this. I could talk to an undercover police officer about child sex trafficking. I could talk to a person, and I have in my time, about addiction to drugs. How first you start off with pills or maybe a little alcohol. And then later on, you're down the road with heroin or meth. And you don't really quite know how you got there. Good people need to be reminded of this over and over again because they sometimes fail to recognize that evil lies in small decisions, the incremental decisions, the ones that seem to be inconsequential and innocuous. This is why I get all head up about this on the podcast once a year, because here's the thing. If we're not calling out evil, if we're not recognizing it, labeling it accurately, and then here's the thing, designing a doctrine of optimistic victory to overcome it. Evil never sleeps and it gets a vote. And it slides up on us in incremental ways. And by the way, the smash mouth part, that's the part where it's grinding on you. That's the part where decision by decision by decision, you're being pummeled into something else. In that section that we were reading, Frankel was talking about food, right? But then at the end of it, he didn't even have enough human compassion left because it had all been ground out of him. He didn't have the human compassion 
to go and comfort somebody whose feet were swollen from edema and now is probably going to die. That's smash mouth incrementalism. That's grinding people down in the pursuit of totalitarian goals. Leaders have to take the long view on stuff like this, I think. And they have to be hyper aware of the small things. Does that mean they have to pay attention to them all the time? And they have to dominate their vision and focus? Maybe, maybe not. We can have that discussion. But they do have to be aware that those small decisions are there. Particularly in the space, we talk about the business world and our very pampered Western culture. Am I making the right ethical decision right now? Am I doing the most ethical thing right now? In man's search for meaning, meaning is ground out, right, JP? Meaning is ground out. We see, we see this in that little, that little piece there. Um, what struck you most about this? And how do people solve the meaning problem in the 21st century? Because that is the crisis that we are in right now in the West. I 100% believe that. We are in a crisis of meaning. Yeah. Um, and this goes beyond politics. This goes beyond religious structures. This goes beyond all of that. This goes beyond culture even. Uh, you know, whether or not I like Taylor Swift, okay, like whatever. Like that's, 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 that's an irrelevant conversation. The relevant conversation is one of meaning. And how do we find it? How do we pass it along? By the way, in incremental ways to other people. How, how, how do we do that? How, what does Frankel have to say to us from this book for us now in our very sophisticated, very outre 21st century? Where, where, by the way, we arrogantly believe that we've overcome all that that we're somehow better human beings than the ones that were in the 20th century. And by the way, I see this arrogance all over the place. It's, it's, it's kind of shocking, actually. Um, so how do we wrest meaning from all of that? Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, fr from my perspective, I've always had a sense of meaning. Ever since I was a little kid, I, I, I had that, right? Um, even through... Uh, you know, 2008 and all that period, I, I had something that, of course, you know, I had my, I, I had to, you know, feed my family, mm -hmm. a roof over their head. And that's, that's meaning in itself, isn't it? Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah. I, I think that those, those impulses are in us, um, both as men and women, you know, um, and by the way, you're going to have the same impulse if you have children or if you don't have children, like, let's be real here. Um, but I think those are, those are inbuilt into the structure of reality for us as human beings. So yes, I think they provide meaning. I think they're just the beginning of it, but yeah. So, so there's a baseline, you know, uh, yeah. if you've got something, you know, like uh, Ricardo in the story that I told Ricardo had like this incredible sense of meaning that, that, uh, evolved right because first it was to save his son right then he started a cancer foundation mm -hmm. and that's what he's up to now and he started not only a cancer foundation but also a um company that does uh brings biotech companies from all over the world to the united states and collaborates with them and helps them mm -hmm. 
Um, so, so there's his meaning, right? I think that here in 2023, meaning is actually easy. It's so easy to find it. There's so much to do. You look at society and there is so much division and we are now at a place where it's a diverging path and we're either going down the road of, you know, uh, dystopian, you know, nightmares, or we're going to fix it. I think in the next few years, as time goes by, we're going to see more and more that we are down one path or the other. So you talk about meaning, it's there, it's easy. Okay, if it's there and it's easy, I'm gonna push back on this. Then right. why are so many people struggling to find it? I have a hard time with that again, because I have my own personal self, uh, my, my own personal source of meaning that in me, in my mind, I don't know how I'm getting there, but that's where I'm going. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so for me, I mean, I'll tell you a little bit about it. Uh, and maybe that for some people might lead them, might bring up some ideas of how they can find meaning for themselves, but I'll tell you what, you know, some of the things that, that I'm a part of, um, back in, what was it? 2017. I had read the book, uh, Conscious Capitalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very impactful. I mean, it was, uh, I think I read it actually 2016. Um, very impactful. Maybe that's three or four mm -hmm. <laughs> in my list of impactful books. Um, and I saw, I, you know, I, I, I thought about how, okay, that's what needs to change. That's certainly one of the components that needs to change. Just the way that capitalism works right now, it is uh, predatory. It has been since the day of of Adam Smith. All right, Wealth of Nations. It was it was predatory forever, right? Um, and it turned into something that Adam Smith did not intend. Uh, he intended, intended something completely different. Um, so I thought about it a lot. And one day I am, you know, searching the web, looking around and I come across conscious capitalism as a, an organization. I'm like, oh my goodness. I didn't know this was an organization. Uh, so I'm looking further and I find out, oh, wow, there's a chapter in Boston. And then I'm looking through the Boston chapter of conscious capitalism, and I see the uh, uh, in in a, a couple of the pictures, a good friend of mine. I had no idea. So that's when I got involved with conscious capitalism. Um, and uh, you know, 2017 is when I started. I was one of the founding members, and I've been involved ever since. So that's one place where there is just a you know, uh, you can find meaning by getting yourself involved in that particular group 
and helping out, right? There's, there's millions of groups out there. Another one that I am involved with um, is the World Ethics Organization. Um, the World Ethics Organization, uh, I've, I've been asked to join their board of directors and uh, I have said yes. So we're going through that process. And the idea there is there are all these organizations that want to be ethical or that are just underneath this ethical framework that, that, that are already trying to build their ethical framework. Well, the World Ethics Organization wants to bring all of those organizations and, uh, and those subject matter experts and those individuals together to collaborate uh, under what, what we call the ecosystem for ethics. Now, that to me, you've got conscious capitalism. That is uh, one of those pillars that, 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 that have to hold up whatever this, this new society is, right? Ethics is another one. Um, I'm reading this book right now. I'm in the middle of it, and, and I, I uh, diverted back to, to listening to, to Viktor Frankl again, but I'm going to go back to it again. It's uh, Jonathan Sachs, uh, Reverend Jonathan Sachs, uh, Morality, okay. which is just a fantastic book. A lot of different things coming together. And he talks about conscious capitalism, not in those words, uh, but he does talk about a capitalism that is more conscious, that is more conscious of all stakeholders, right? So the World Ethics Organization, you're, you're talking about capitalism, you're talking about fixing uh, politics, right? We've got to get some ethics into politics. Are we going to go down the path of fixing society if we don't talk about ethics in, in politics? No. So, so something has to happen there. So much has to happen. And for anybody searching for meaning, it's out there. There's another group that I'm, I'm getting into, uh, uh, um, getting involved with that I think is this third pillar, very important pillar. It is um, called the Institute for Cultural Evolution. And what they've got is a framework to bring people together to have conversations. Uh, basically, you know, you've got your fringes, right? You've got your, your far left and your far right. And yeah, it, you know, Initially, they're not going to come together, but you bring the, the center of, of the people that are outside these fringes together to at least start having conversations and have mutual respect. Well, what the Institute for Cultural Evolution has done is they've developed a framework for that where uh, they've divided it up into four different factions. And the idea is that they come together, have conversations, uh, and acknowledge the positives that they bring to the table, but at the same time, uh, acknowledge the pathologies that are part of the faction that they've created, this tribe that has been created uh, in order to just start having these discussions. So from my perspective, these are the three organizations that I wanna get involved with. I see a collaboration. I wanna bring them together in a collaboration um, and I think that it's at least 
one of the things that have to take place in order for us to go down that right path. So meaning it's abundant. And you mentioned that, and those are three great organizations and we'll have links to all of those places. And you can go check out all these organizations in the show notes um, below this podcast episode and it's released. Um, so you can go check that out. Um, the thing that undergirds that though, is that, and you, and you actually opened by saying this, you've always had a sense that there was something there, right? I wonder if the people who are struggling to find meaning, some of whom are leaders, by the way, um, who have risen very highly in organizational structures. Um, I wonder if that thing that you always had inside of you, they never had cultivated or, or fostered. That's, that's my first thought, right? And so just like um, an executive who has the classic midlife crisis and goes by as a car, right? Or does other maybe potentially unethical things. Um, I, maybe in the West, what we're having right now at a cultural level, and it kind of struck me when you were talking, maybe we're in the midst of a midlife crisis. And maybe not necessarily the West overall, um, in the United States in particular, in the middle of a midlife crisis. Um, you talk about, so that's one idea that, that, that jumps off there. The other thing is, you're right. I think I think we are on, we do have to pick divergent paths. And actually, I did a short episode about this a couple of weeks ago. I think we've made a decision on which path we're going to go. Well, some of us have and some of us haven't though, right? No, 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 no. I I, I think the 51% have made the decision, yeah. but it's not anything that's going to show up on Facebook. It's not anything that's going to show up on social media. It's not even going to show up in our voting patterns or who we pick for president because those are all, or Congress or whoever politics, those sort of structures are, are lagging indicators. They're lagging indicators. So they're going to be lagging for a while, but I think that's going to be done first. Well, I think the work is, I think the work has already started to be being done, but I think because of that work, a decision has already been made. Um, and I, I sense, and this is something else that I want leaders to be aware of. I sense a shift in the cultural zeitgeist. Um, 51% 51% have made a decision. And I was actually talking with somebody about this the other day. 51% of people in America have made a decision. This is not me in my bubble in Texas. This ain't, this ain't it. I go to other places in Texas. I talk to other people. This ain't my bubble in Texas. <laughs> um, this ain't even my bubble in social media and what I may be looking at. It ain't that. I think that in the United States, there's something subtle that's moved. We made a decision. And I don't think it's a decision where I don't think the divergence was, are we going to be dystopian or were we going to go, are we going to Blade Runner or Star Trek? (laughs) I don't, I don't think it's that. I think, I think the, the divergence is, are we going to have a Republic that allows us to maybe potentially get to Star Trek? Or are we going to have something that's a little more authoritarian that leads us to the potential of Blade Runner? I think that decision was far more subtle than that. And I also think that it's happening at at multiple levels at multiple spaces in our culture right now. Um, And I, and this is how the United States kind of works. You know, we, we sort of talk about being, you know, born in Chile. I I talk to people who were, who were from Canada, right. Or who are from other countries and they look at us in the United States. They're like, you have 315 million people there. How does anything happen? Like, well, 
here's how things here's how things happen in the United States. We yell at each other about something for about 10 or 15 years, <laughs> hit no. each other in the face. <laughs> and then weirdly, somebody calls time, although nobody has a name for that. And usually it's not the president or a congressman or some celebrity that you've heard of. It's just people just randomly call time. And then we all just sort of drift in one direction because we make a decision and we just drift that way. And we pull the other, we pull the other folks with us. So that's the second thing. I think, I think the people who have always had a sense of meaning um, are going to do better there. And I think they are pulling us in a particular direction, but they had to coalesce first, right? And then the other idea there, which I think is interesting, which I find interesting in what you were saying is um, these larger structures of capitalism these larger structures of, um, of uh, ethics, right? These larger structures of or around the environment, right? Or around these other areas that, that seem to be too large for individuals. Typically, um, and we can look at the work of Michael Schellenberger on this, Bjorn Lomberg and others, uh, particularly in the climate change space, are typically solved by small things, small, unsexy things. And uh, the people who tend to listen to this podcast are people who tend to do unsexy work. <laughs> so, you know, uh, they're not necessarily always doing work that is uh, trumpeted everywhere, right? They're moving the ball forward in an incremental kind of way. And I think that those are the people that will push us towards that, towards that, that other divergence that going in the opposite or not the opposite, but going in a, in a more uh, optimistic direction. But it's going hey, to Sean, I, I got to tell you, I am at the edge of my seat, waiting to hear <laughs> what it is that you're 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 going to say. I mean, what is it? What what's changed? I don't I, I I don't know to what you're referring. So so I think that pardon my impatience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that <laughs> I think that we are the generation, um, the generation that's listening to this podcast, the generation of people who are on this podcast. We will not see the results of our work. Okay. We just won't see it. But our job is to lay the foundations for our children and our grandchildren to see the results of our work. Uh, the comparison that I make is the, the generation that, that fought the Revolutionary War and that wrote the words of the Declaration of Independence and that wrote the words of the United States Constitution. That generation, there were two or three generations behind them that set the table for them to even have those thoughts. And for them to even have the ability to believe that those things were possible. So you talk about Adam Smith, right? Um, you know, Adam Smith cobbled together his uh, theory of economics based off of things he was seeing that had been occurring for, you know, 80 or 90 years, right? Um, in most of the major powers in, um, in Europe, right? Um, and he was searching for a solution to <laughs> a solution to Dutch mercantilism. <laughs> Quite frankly, that's what he was looking for, right? And um, and he found that solution, but he could not have found it without the work. By the way, the unsung work that had gone along underneath other people's uh, auspices. I think we are in that same spot right now. And by the way, where it's a similar spot to the place where the United States was between um, eighteen sixty. Uh, 1865, actually, 1865, and um, and 1945. So we're in we're in a midst of an 80 year switchover. We're in the midst of an 80 year switchover, and it's always in that 80 year switchover. Like the people in 1860. I'm currently reading a biography of uh, Ulysses S. Grant. Love Ulysses S. Grant. He's my favorite Civil War general. 
the guy was a microcosm of America, kind of rough and ready, kind of moving from failure to failure, kind of having a lack of meaning. And then the war came along and gave him meaning. Um, you look at the people, the generation that fought World War II, um, particularly in America, you know, they went through ridiculous suffering in the 20s and 30s because of the Great Depression, suffering we can't imagine. Uh, and the suffering that we, we, we are doing everything in our power financially to not ever get back to ever, which that warps things. And as a finance guy, you know, that warps things, but we'll leave that aside for just a minute. Um, but we are doing everything we can to avoid that. And now we're in the midst of a nut, we're at the end actually of another 80 year cycle where those bricks are being laid for the revolutionary generation that will come next. So the revolutionary generation that came from the 1940s generation was the 60s and 70s generation. Uh, the revolutionary generation that will come out of our generation, I think that will be the Gen Zers and whoever it is that comes Gen Alpha, I guess, is the thing that will come after them. What will that revolution look like? Well, it won't look like the 60s. It will not look like anything from the 20th century. Right. And it will not look like anything from the 19th century. So you ask me to describe it. You say you're on the edge of your seat. I frame it as a third turning. But it's going to be different. Yep. Um, the fact of the matter is, we are very much right now in a panic in the West about nuclear war. Um, I think that that is an old panic. Uh, not to say that that can't happen. I'm not naive or stupid, but we are in a panic about that, very much so because of the war in Ukraine and, and other things. Um, I think we're more in a panic of the BRICS nations coming together and uh, the the with well, what's going to happen with the dollar? And <laughs> well, I, I if you're if we were to if we were to rank it, <laughs> okay. then the nuke stuff would be at least among the intelligentsia. Let's let me frame it among the intelligentsia, not among the not among the people who actually get up and go to work every day. Those people are worried about much more mundane things. Yeah. Um, but among the intelligentsia, yeah, I mean the Ukraine nukes, are we, aren't we? That thing right there, that's top of mind. Then after that, it's the dollar. And then after that, it's the bricks, if people can even get to where the bricks are. Um, and then and then there's a bunch of other things that happen after that, um, or that are concerns after that. Um, I'm not, so I'm not dismissing it. I just think the order might be a little, my order might be a little bit different than yours. Yeah. Um, but I think those are fears and ideas that are stoked by people who still have the residue of the last century in their heads. And we talked about this uh, in episode number 64 with the myth of Sisyphus. We still have all this infrastructure and people walking around who were born and raised at the end of the last century. I was talking with my wife about this the other day. You know, I've got a six-year-old boy. He's part of, he's the tail end of the first generation that will have zero emotional connection to World War II in any kind of meaningful way at all. It will be, it will be as history to him as the Civil War is to me. It'll be interesting but not particularly relevant to his real lived life. And so we're laying the foundational bricks for my six-year-old. That's what we're doing. And we had to decide which path are we going to go on? Which set of civilizational bricks are we going to lay? And I think a decision has been, I think a decision has been made. I think we're, I think we're going to the, uh, I think we're going to the more Star Trek future, but I think it's going to be a while before we get there. And that's fine. It's just going to be a while. And we got to we, we have have go to that way. Right. And we have to dismantle all of the old stuff of the 20th century. We still have a lot of dismantling to do and then reassembling. And this is where 
I depart from folks who are more deconstructionist in their pursuit, where the, the many of the postmoderns, and we are at the end of postmodern nihilism, by the way, too. I think that's collapsing too, because postmodern nihilism just deconstructs, but it doesn't create. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we've done enough of that. We, we've done enough. Nietzsche, we've had enough. And, and if you're going to create something, um, well, you have to have a sense of meaning and you have to know where meaning comes from. And you have to believe that that source of meaning is, is, is powerful um, and is a driver for you. Wow. Which, gets, which gets us back to the book. Yeah. Go so ahead. just, I, I want to throw out there for people that are, that are interested in, in, in finding something, right? There's, there's just a whole mess of books mm-hmm. that can lead you down just a really interesting path. Um, I brought a couple of them here. This one, uh, the, the Purpose Economy. Mm-hmm. So this, this is a, a, a fantastic book about how uh, millennials and in, 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 uh, 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 Gen Z, uh, when they go into to work now, they're looking for meaning. Mm-hmm. So yep. if you want to, if you're, if you're a leader and you want to attract millennials and uh, Gen Zers, you've got to help them find some sort of meaning in what they do on a day-to-day basis. So that's a wonderful book. Uh, Another one is Tribes by Seth Godin. Mm -hmm. The idea there is that um, there are all these tribes everywhere. the, The internet is just filled with all these tribes looking for people to lead them. So what it means to me is, you know, you look at conscious capitalism, you look at the World Ethics Organization, Institute for Cultural Evolution, they all have leaders, but they all need to be led as well under to to, to what is the next step, Mm -hmm. right? And that's where I see the potential for those three organizations coming together to do something that I think will be pretty awesome. Uh, something I've been working on. Um, so, so again, you know, there's just a lot of things out there. I love, I, I, I haven't thought about it in the perspective that you just brought out and that you just laid out. And I really like it a lot because it's a really, um, it's a really positive message because to me, in my mind, I've seen this divergence where it's it's kind of like we're going down both paths <laughs> and at some <laughs> yeah. point we're going to have to loop around one of them <laughs> right? well and i think i think that's part of the i think that's part of the giant cultural tussle that we do in the united states um when you read as many books as i read now during the year across multiple genres um well, you realize from Shakespeare, actually even earlier than that, from the Greeks um, and even the Bible, all the way up to now, what you realize in reading Western literature and Western classics that is maybe different from Eastern literature and Eastern classics, what you realize is this, Western culture really likes to argue, case in point. I talked about this actually on the podcast a couple episodes ago 
um, with Tom Libby, episode number 62, 61 or 62. Um, because Tom kind of brought this up with me and it, and it, it kind of makes sense. Um, in the 15th century, 14th century, the Ottoman Empire was going to try to basically overthrow Vienna. And if they had, um, the majority of Western Europe probably would have been, would have been uh, under the Muslim Caliphate, which would have shifted Western culture dramatically. <laughs> the Venetians were having arguments all the way up to the point where they met the Turks in the harbor before they even fired the first shot about which direction to go. <laughs> and if you've ever lived in America, you laugh at this because this is exact. This is precisely what we've taken to a science and it's anxiety inducing. It's existentially distressing, but what else would we do in a country that is built not on, not on, one race or one class or one religion we're not built on that we're built on the radical idea that you can have all of that go away i said idea you can have all of that go away and we will we will follow one creed we will follow the creed and it will be a creed that says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights and among these are life liberty and the pursuit not of property, which is what Thomas Jefferson wanted it to initially be, but the pursuit of happiness. That is a bold creed. Matter of fact, out of all the civilizations in the history of the world, that's probably the boldest creed ever been written down and actually published to the world. We've been working out just how bold that is in our country for the last 200 and some odd years. And I don't think we're done with the experiment of working that out yet. But built into that, is the Western tendency to argue all the way up to the point of apocalypse and then to be like, oh, now we're fine. We're going to go in this other direction here. Now we're going to go chase that unicorn over there. And, 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 and if you're, again, if you're watching this from the outside, and I have a lot of international listeners, I mean, listeners from India, you mentioned the BRICS. I have a ton of listeners from India. I have a ton of listeners from uh, Brazil. Um, if you're watching this from the outside and you're confused, I just sort of explained it as best I possibly can to you what it's like to live inside of the house known as the United States of America. And to still be in all of the material ways that are measured, still be light years ahead of everybody else and still have a massive inferiority complex <laughs> about it. Yeah. And this is why we don't do empire building well. And this is why when we, this is why we fail miserably at colonialism. This is why we fail miserably at all that stuff that requires you to have a gigantic ego as a culture. Because we don't, we have a massive inferiority complex, even though we get up every day and go out and do stuff. And those tensions exist in our country because of that creed um, and because of how, interestingly enough, all those old boys from back in the day tried to pull all those tensions together and said, maybe if we can just hold on to it tightly enough, as Benjamin Franklin infamously said to the woman who asked him, when he came out of the Constitutional Convention, what do we have, Mr. Franklin? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. That's the tension that we have. So we're not the first generation to feel that anxiety or feel that existential despair or existential stress. I just think we're the first ones in a long time that are eminently responsible for the foundation, for setting new foundations. And that's really, really hard. 
and you well, need guideposts to be able to direct you to where those. And that's why I do this podcast. It's a guidepost. It's a guidepost. This is where you go. This is the light. So. So I'm a TikTok scroller. Oh, I don't go on TikTok. That's a neighborhood I don't go to. <laughs> it's pretty cool. My, my, daughter uh, got me on it. my daughter got me on it. She herself has uh, almost 2 million followers. Uh, so she's got a little something going on. There. Oh, well, okay. So she's a king and the queen in that neighborhood. All right. Yeah, she is, she is. <laughs> um, so so there's a theme that I often see because I, I love history. So I'm mm. often like, you know, I, I'll watch the whole history thing. So it yes. brings more history into my into my feed. And there's this theme out there that, you know, you look at history and you look at all of the empires that have fallen mm-hmm. and and where those empires were before they fell or started to fall. Mm-hmm. And the process that they went through as they were falling, mm-hmm. and you can draw a lot of parallels to where we are now. Mm-hmm. So your optimism, which I love, um, I, I, I wish I could absorb more of it, but I'm absorbing a little, maybe too much of this, this other theme. Well, I do think, and, and this is something that I, I put in my notes, we have to have an eschatology of the future right? We have to have an, a doctrine of optimism. Yes. Uh, I'm starting to wrap my arms more about this. And it's interesting because uh, my wife and kids will tell you I'm probably the most pessimistic, cynical person ever, right? Like you, you look, if you stare at human nature long enough, you're going you're gonna to not be surprised. That's going to lead you into some cynicism. But there's a difference between cool, coolly detached cynicism about things again that's another very that's nihilism's ugly little brother and it takes real you talk about living heroically it takes heroics ah i don't even want to use that word that word is too too it's too much weight to go with that it takes it takes yeah and it's inappropriate for the for the idea that i'm about to push forth it's an inappropriate weight for an inappropriate idea we got to balance the ideas and the words together appropriately it takes a certain level of belief and meaning to say, yes, human beings are frail and fallible. And as human beings, people in the United States are still the same as any other human beings that have ever existed on the face of the planet. They come with, again, I'm, I'm, I, I speak from a Christian perspective on this one. They come, they come with sin. They come with fallibility. They come with the ability to miss the mark. And yes, more likely than not, nine times out of 10, people in general are probably going to be more like the concentration camp capo than they are going to be the person who resolutely is like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and is consistent all the way to the gallows. The guy that is bringing the little bits of bread that he has left. Right. To, to give to the people that, uh, that need it more than he that, does. That need it more than he does. Those people are, are rare. But if all you do is look at those people, if all you do is, and this is one of the true things, one of the very few true things that Nietzsche stay, stated, if you do stare into the abyss long enough, it does stare back through you. And there's nothing there in the abyss. We need to have a doctrine of optimism. You yes. cannot stare into the abyss. Otherwise, otherwise, the... So fulfilling. 
Well, right. It's a self-fulfilling and self-sealing prophecy, but it also, if you don't have a positive eschatology, if you don't have a positive view of the future, then why bother? Go forth to, go forth to nihilism, right? Go forth to existential dread. <laughs> go wrap, because it makes logical sense, right? Um, uh, uh, Albert Camus would, and this is in the myth of Sisyphus, this is what he argues. It's more logical to commit suicide than it is to live. Yep. I don't buy that. Sorry. I, I no. Well, uh, if you've got no meaning, it makes sense. Right. And he, but if you have no meaning, to your point, go get some. Go get some. It's there's all, all there's plentiful. All, right. There's all these options. Many options. And by the way, you don't have to go volunteer. I, I love it how how JP talked about volunteering for various organizations like ones that are focused around big picture goals, like um, creating new capitalism or, um, or engaging in social justice or engaging around the environment. Sure, you can go do all those things, but, or not but, and I would assert, I'm going to go down the Jordan Peterson road a little bit on this one. I think you need to make your bed first. Start fixing your own house. Mm-hmm. Look around at your family. Look around at the broken places yeah. in your, the people who are nearest to you. Um, if you are in a family where divorce and uh, abuse and trauma and dysfunction, and you're you're trying to lead your company, and then you go home to trauma, abuse, and dysfunction, your problem is not you, you should not be trying to grab meaning from work, although that might be a bulwark. You should try to fix what's in your your family. And by the way, fixing it in your family will be just as daunting. It's trying to create a new form of capitalism. Matter of fact, in many cases, it's <laughs> more daunting than trying to create a new form of NBA. capitalism. Yeah. Um, and so that's where I think guys like Jordan Peterson have it correct on that one, for sure. Make your own bed, fix your own house. And then after you've done that, then reach out to your larger community. And by the way, you'll have skill sets and wisdom and experience that, will, that you will be able to apply to those hard problems. And you'll be able to talk in a mature adult way about how to solve those hard problems. Because we don't need more revolutionary fervor. We need more adults in the room. Back to the book. Back to Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Once again, I'm reading from the Washington Square Press edition, um, published in, um, in 1959. The opportunities for collective psychotherapy were naturally limited in camp. The right example was more effective than words could ever be. A senior block warden who did not side with the authorities had, by his just and encouraging behavior, a thousand opportunities to exert a far-reaching moral influence on those under his jurisdiction. The immediate influence of behavior is always more effective than that of words, but at times a word was effective too when mental receptiveness had been intensified by some outer circumstances. I remember an incident where there was occasion for psychotherapeutic work on the inmates of a whole hut due to an intensification of their receptiveness because of a certain external situation. It had been a bad day. On parade, an announcement had been made about the many actions that would from then on be regarded as sabotage and therefore punishable by immediate death by hanging. Among these were crimes such as cutting small strips from our old blankets in order to improvise ankle supports and very minor thefts. 
A few days previously, a semi-starved prisoner had broken into the potato store to steal a few pounds of potatoes. The theft had been discovered and some prisoners had recognized the quote-unquote burglar. When the camp authorities heard about it, they ordered that the guilty man be given up to them or that the whole camp would starve for a day. Naturally, the 2,500 men preferred to fast. On the evening of this day of fasting, we lay in our earthen huts in a very low mood. Very little was said and every word sounded irritable. Then, to make matters even worse, the light went out. Tempers reached their lowest ebb, but our senior block warden was a wise man. He improvised a little talk about all that was on our minds at that moment. He talked about the many comrades who had died in the last few days, either of sickness or of suicide, but he also mentioned what had what may have been the real reason for their deaths, giving up hope. He maintained that there should be some way of preventing possible future victims from reaching this extreme state. And it was to me that Warden pointed to give this advice. God knows I was not in the mood to give psychological explanations or to preach any sermons, to offer my comrades a kind of medical care of their souls. I was cold and hungry, irritable and tired, but I had to make the effort and use this unique opportunity. Encouragement was now more necessary than ever. So I began by mentioning the most trivial of comforts first. I said that even in this Europe in the sixth winter of the Second World War, our situation was not the most terrible we could think of. I said that each of us had to ask himself what irreplaceable losses he had suffered up to then. I speculated that for most of them, these losses had really been few. Whoever was still alive had reason for hope, health, family, happiness, professional abilities, fortune, position in society. All these were things that could be achieved again or restored. After all, we still had our all our bones intact. Whatever we had gone through could still be an asset to us in the future. And I quoted from Nietzsche, that which does not kill me makes me stronger. Then I spoke about the future. I said that to the impartial, the future must seem hopeless. I agree that each of us could guess for himself how small were his chances of survival. I told them that although there was still no typhus epidemic in the camp, I estimated my own chances at about one in 20. But I also told them that in spite of this, I had no intention of losing hope and giving up. And no man knew what the future would bring, much less the next hour. Even if we could not expect any sensational military events in the next few days, who knew better than we, with our experience of camps, how great chances sometimes opened up, quite suddenly, at least for the individual. For instance, one might be attached unexpectedly to a special group with exceptionally good working conditions, for this was the kind of thing which constituted the luck of the prisoners. But I did not only talk of the future and the veil which was drawn over it, I also mentioned the past all its joys, and how its light shone even in the present darkness. Again, I quoted a poet, to avoid sounding like a preacher myself, who had written, Was du erbest kann kein mach der Wut der Robin. What you have experienced, no power on earth can take from you. Not only our experiences, but all we have done, whatever great thoughts we may have had, and all we have suffered, all this is not lost, though it is past. We have brought it into being. Having been is also a kind of being, and perhaps the surest kind. Then I spoke of the many opportunities of giving life a meaning. I told my comrades, who lay motionless, although occasionally a sigh could be heard, that human life under any circumstances never ceases to have a meaning, and that this infinite meaning of life includes suffering and dying, privation and death. I asked the poor creatures who listened to me attentively in the darkness of the hut to face up to the seriousness of our position. They must not lose hope should keep their courage and the certainty that the hopelessness of our struggle did not detract from its dignity and its meaning. 
I said that someone looks down on each of us in difficult hours, a friend, a wife, somebody alive or dead or a God. And he would not expect us to disappoint him. He would hope to find us suffering proudly, not miserably, knowing how to die. And finally, I spoke of our sacrifice, which had meaning in every case. It was in the nature of the sacrifice that it should appear to be pointless in the normal world, the world of material success. But in reality, our sacrifice did have a meaning. Those of us who had any religious faith, I said frankly, could understand without difficulty. I told them of a comrade who on his arrival in camp had tried to make a pact with heaven that his suffering and death should save the human being he loved from a painful end. For this man, suffering and death were meaningful. His was a sacrifice of the deepest significance. He did not want to die for nothing. None of us wanted that. The purpose of my words was to find a full meaning in our life then and there, in that hut and in that practically hopeless situation. I saw that my efforts had been successful. When the electric bulb flared up again, I saw the miserable figures of my friends limping toward me to thank me with tears in their eyes. But I have to confess here that only too rarely had I the inner strength to make contact with my companions in suffering, and that I must have missed many opportunities to do so. In that little passage there, Frankel notes the same sort of paradigm for meaning in the Nazi concentration camps that Alexander Solzhenitsyn noted in the Soviet gulags. And I mentioned this before, but not in this way. Uh, Solzhenitsyn pointed out that people who were atheistic and people who were religious sometimes switched ideologies in the, in the gulags. And I think Frankel would agree the same thing happened in the camps. But the ones that survived the longest and Solzhenitsyn points out an example in the Gulag Archipelago of a woman who um, was part of the, 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 the Kulaks, right? The people who were middle class in Russia who were just trying to, trying to build something and not be a serf. They were the ones that Lenin came for first, that the communist system sought to grind down first. And uh, the woman Solzhenitsyn mentioned, uh, she got locked up in the gulag and uh, the prisoner, or not the prisoner, the, the guards there mocked her because the guards came from a different class than she did. And they basically said, you know, we're going to kill you because you thought, well, you thought you were something that you, you weren't. And now we are in charge and you are not. And she said to them, according to Solzhenitsyn's rendering of the story, what do I care about that? I have to go to God, not you. That, of course, caused the guards to pull up short. Frankel mentioned something very similar when he talks about the person who made a deal with heaven. We need the transcendent in our lives. We need something beyond the material. We need something beyond the emotional. We need a framework for the transcendent. One of the things we were going to have to rebuild in the 20th or 21st century, sorry, that was wrecked totally in the 20th century was a framework for transcendence. That framework I do not fundamentally believe will come from psychedelics or from music 
I believe those things can support maybe a framework for the transcendent, but they are not the framework in and of itself. They're kind of like the tiles on the roof. <laughs> they're helpful, don't get me wrong, but they're still the tiles. If you take out the two by six beams, those tiles are still gonna fall down. We did a really good job in the 20th century of yanking out all the two by six beams. And this is why we're in a meaning crisis that we're in, I think, in the 21st century. But there are pockets where people are waking up to this and are trying to put those two by six beams back into the roof, back into the structure of belief, the framework of meaning. Does my transcendent have to be your transcendent? No, but you better believe in something. Uh, the atheist, Christopher Hitchens, did a series of debates back in the early 2000s with the theologian, Doug Wilson. I would encourage you to go check those out on YouTube. And if JP hasn't seen them, he should go check those out too. They're really very good. And Hitchens often said that Doug Wilson, back when people could actually debate and be disagreeable without disagreeing, or disagree without being disagreeable, <laughs> he said that uh, Doug Wilson was the only one who ever scared him because Doug knew all of his arguments and all the religious ones too and would put him to task every time. We need to have the debate between something and nothing, but at the end of the day, I am a partisan for something. Leaders, I think, need to investigate the nature of religious meaning. And yes, religion does tie to the transcendent. And religion just means the structure you put around the transcendent. So your transcendent can be an emotion, but you're going to put structure around that. That's going to be your religion. But of course, this word comes loaded, right, with uh, metaphysical meaning and things that people reject. And leaders get really, really hinky when you talk about religious meaning. But I would assert that if we're talking about ESG scores, it's just religion around something transcendent. <laughs> so JP, I think this is a place where you and I are going to tussle a little bit as we turn around the corner, and that's okay. I think we should on this one. What are your thoughts about the impacts of religious belief on suffering? Well, let me start by sharing just a quick story of little JP in the third grade. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> First, second, third grade, I went to Catholic school. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had to go to church every day. That was part of the whole Catholic school thing, right? Yep. And I remember sitting there and there was some discussion. I don't know if the discussion was going on about hell at that time, but I remember just sitting there having these thoughts, you know, my mind wandering mm -hmm. and just kind of getting mad. Like they were telling me that if certain people, if people don't do things in a certain way, they're going to go to hell. And I had a problem with this. I had, a, th there were these two kids uh, in my grade. I didn't like them. We didn't get along or, or anything like that. Um, but their relationship struck me because they were cousins. And one of them had a mother and father. The other one was an orphan. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, you know, the, the other kids, mother and father were helping them out. I thought to myself, you know, 
having having in my mind a discussion with whoever, maybe the priest or something like that, just in my mind, you're going to tell me that me who has this, you know, loving family, loving parents, loving brothers, if I do something wrong, I'm at the same par as this classmate of mine who has no family, who's got all of this drama in his life. And you're going to tell me that me doing something wrong is the same as that person doing something wrong. I don't buy it. So I just remember this discussion in my head at, uh, at the age of eight. Mm -hmm. Now, fast forward a few years, uh, quite a few, actually. Um, uh, I, you know, the, the whole Catholic school thing Mm -hmm. uh with with the uh with the abuse scandal i was just so disgusted about the by the way that the church handled it by uh you know all the way up to the top the way it was handled one day the pope said something uh about you know if uh, nothing to do with the abuse scandal but just so, something to the effect of hey you know if you're going to do this then you can't call yourself a, a catholic I said to myself, okay, goodbye. <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> mm -hmm. So to me, the whole religious thing, it's, I've gone down this certain road, right? Uh, a lot of, I, you know, I, somebody, as I mentioned earlier, somebody that thinks a lot about meaning, mm -hmm. I went down a path of reading books uh, you know, uh, Buddhism, like you were talking about before, Stoicism, Hinduism, Taoism, uh, which is that other top oh, yeah. book that I talked about, uh, the Tao Te Ching, that has impacted me. So for me, you know, the, the whole concept of religion, what I've decided to do is kind of build my own spiritual structure um, based on the different things that I have read and seen. And I think it follows a lot along the Eastern path of thought, but I've also, you know, I've read the Bible. I've read the New Testament, not, not the Old Testament. I don't know that I want to go there so much, but the New Testament I found beautiful, mm -hmm. certainly parts of it, right? Um, so when you talk about religious belief on suffering, it's hard for me because to me, that question comes down to faith. Mm -hmm. And for me, I don't know what my thoughts are about faith. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I believe in faith. I've struggled with that thought. Um, just another quick story to be able to explain that a little bit better. Back when I was doing mortgages, I had this client uh, who things were going wrong in the mortgage process. And for me, I'm a fighter, right? Mm -hmm. if, if something's going wrong, you, you figure it out, you fix it. Mm -hmm. And his attitude, and I mean, you know, it was, it was a big decision. It, it would have made his life a lot better, but he and his wife both had the attitude and they both at my conference table said in so many words, it's, you know, don't worry about it. 
I have faith that everything is going to work out the way it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, no, <laughs> we can, we can fix this. We just have to, you know, do the, the things that have to get done. Mm -hmm. And that, that kind of, you know, uh, I've had in the back of my mind that that is faith. And I know that that is not the definition of faith for everyone. Mm -hmm. But for me, I felt that frustration of someone believing in faith in that way. So the impact of religious belief on suffering. Well, and let's, keep it, to, Ellen, let's keep it to, you know, the, you, you, you know, your, your first opening couple of examples were 2008, 2011, right? So the question I would ask you is, do you believe that the actions that you took in 2008 and 2011 were based on faith? Meaning, meaning a belief that if I take action, there will be an outcome, even though I have zero proof that there actually will be. Okay. It's a very different definition of faith, isn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, in my life, I just, I've, I've had many times, especially in 2008 through, you know, 2013, when, when things really sucked, mm -hmm. there were a number of times where I'm like, how in the hell am I going to make rent? Right. And oh, yeah. then something comes along and it's there for me. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, not to say that I didn't have to work really hard for it. <laughs> Right. And all yeah. that make, yeah. make it happen to best. But it, the opportunity was there, right? Well, and at a certain point, don't you think that you get to the end of your human strength? I've been there. Right. Okay. What happens after that? What crosses the gap? This is all I always ask people who struggle with the conception of faith in a religious context. Yeah. Uh, I think that they, I, I think fundamentally, maybe not you, but other folks are narrowly defining something in order to dismiss it. When quite frankly, it's way broader than than even quite frankly, quote unquote, religious, whatever that may mean. And we can talk about that. But religious people understand, even those folks. It's way broader than that. Yeah. Um, and that's because of certain conceptions that I have of how God works in the world, how tra the transcendent works in the world, which is way beyond, I believe, fundamentally both way beyond what we understand and something that's really at the ground level in ways we can understand. And it's happening all at the exact same time, which tends to screw people up because <laughs> we don't, human beings like to compartmentalize. <laughs> we don't, we don't like that. We don't like that. Everything happening all like that movie, everything everywhere, all at once. We don't like that. That's, that's too much. <laughs> um, but that idea, right. That at the end of your human strength, there's something, would you call that faith? Because you're going to do everything you possibly can to make rent. And then at a certain point, you have to leave the computer or you have to stop driving around in the car. You have to go to your house. You have to put it down. You have to let it go. I don't think I ever got there. Okay. Because I always just, if, if I need another gr couple grand, yeah, I'm going to find it. Right. Okay. It's, it's going to happen. Right, right. And that it's going to happen, that it's going to happen, that statement right there, that's a statement of faith. Is it a statement of faith, though? I, I believe mean, that's, I believe, 
Yeah. I, I mean, that's where that's where the, the gray area and ethics comes in, right? No, I, I don't can, believe that. I, I don't. I can go knock up a liquor store. <laughs> the gray area and ethics comes. No, I won't say the gray area and ethics comes. The ethical issue there comes when, yeah, I'm going to make two grand and I'm going to cross over the border of my principles to go do it. So are you going to go knock up a liquor store? No. Everything that I know, everything that you and I know about. Never had to get there. Right, right, exactly. Okay, okay. So, so it is, it is, I can hear people saying this. Uh, and this is the pushback, by the way, is legitimate pushback. Atheists make this pushback too. Um, we need to have more material structures in the world that close the gap between the need for two grand and robbing a liquor store. We just need to have more of those structures. Except the tragedy is there aren't enough structures to cross that gap for every single human being in every single situation, every single time. The idea that there are enough structures or that we as humans can build them out of our own material prosperity is a statement of faith. It's not a statement of reality. You talked about liking the New Testament. Jesus says to the disciples of the New Testament, and he's talking about all kinds of different things in this word he's using, but he tells the disciples, the poor you will always have with you. That's a statement of the structure of reality. We in the West are so materially, remember I was talking about the hubris and arrogance piece? We're so hubristic and arrogant that we've solved most material privation problems that that little gap between me having $2,000 and having to go rob a liquor store we think that's material privation. And maybe for some people it is. And we also hubristically believe, because we're also scientific materialists, that there should be some scientific material solution to that problem. That's an issue of faith as well, but it's faith in scientific materialism. It's not a faith in transcendence. It's a faith in human beings. It's a faith in uh, material wealth. It's a faith in being able to just get the right amount of money in the right amount of people's hands. So we see this with uh, universal basic income ideas, which I don't think will work, by the way. But that's a side note. We do see it in the arguments for universal basic income. If we just give people out of our material largesse $5,000 a year, that'll solve all their problems. Well, except they're going to need $10,000 the next year. Because the material needs never end. And then they're going to expect 15 after that. <laughs> well, they're not, not even expect, they're going to need 15 after that. This is why I'm also opposed to most minimum wages, because really the minimum wage is actually zero, quite frankly. It actually is. If we're really going to be blunt about it, it's actually zero. Zero is the minimum. A dollar is not minimum. A dollar is a wage. So let's, words have meaning, right? We're a literary podcast. Let's change the words. Let's actually talk about what we're talking about here, which is what's the maximum wage we want to pay for the work that we want to do. But that doesn't politically sell. You can't say maximum wage. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, but I think that act of believing that the scientific material progress that we have made in the United States can somehow solve that gap, that's an act of faith. That's a, it's even a statement of faith. I guess that's where, so your optimism comes from a fundamental faith that you have and my i'm very optimistic myself 
Right. But yeah. <laughs> my thought that we're in this divergent path here and that, that it's possible that we can go down this, you know, dystopian road mm -hmm. um, is, is perhaps where your feeling of faith trumps mine. <laughs> is, is, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it trumps it. I would say that it's robust because it's been tested. You know, I, I don't, I, I've had moments in my life where that has been tested. Right. Um, and it has not been found wanting. I have not been, I have not been disappointed. Um, you don't live in Syria either, do you? And this is the other thing. Exactly. <laughs> right. So, you know, like, like, you know, we're not, we have to be real about the context of what we're talking about. So one of the things that you mentioned at the beginning of, of why you, why you would like this book is perspective. We're reading about a we're reading about the experiences of a person in a concentration camp in in Austria who's a Jewish Austrian um, citizen, right? Whose rights were progressively violated by a regime that existed and was built with the express purpose of basically wiping him out. We don't live underneath that sort of system. However, when you talk about trauma in a family or dysfunction, the same emotional life exists that Frankel was going through in the, in the, in the life of someone who's going through or living in a family where alcoholism, drug abuse, and, um, and, uh, dysfunction are just the de rigueur they're just the norm and they're trying to escape that they feel like they're in a concentration camp yep. they don't have the language for that but they feel that the same emotion right um or if you are as there are many guys that i grew up with who wound up going to jail because they did rob a liquor store for two grand huh and they went from, I remember one time you and I were having a conversation about hell. They went from one thing which seemed like hell hmm. to actual suffering. <laughs> you know, and I've had them tell me before I did XYZ thing, I was walking around free as a bird. I didn't realize what I had until I was in some place that was far worse. That gap right there is where I think we need to have a, an, an eschatology of transcendence, an idea, a doctrine, I mean, eschatology, a doctrine of transcendence, which you talked about Catholicism. Well, uh, Catholicism, Protestantism, for all of their faults, Christianity, which overgirds all of those, for all of its faults in the West did fill that gap. For all of its faults. Uh, as a person, I tend to I tend to avoid, you know, talking about who's going to go where, because I don't know where your transcendent soul is going to go. I have no idea. That's between you and somebody else. But I do know what you can build down here. People build hells down here all the time. That should put, give us pause. Can we help those people? Yes, one of the key ways to help them is to is to is to build a doctrine of transcendence in that gap. Um, because my concern is 
when real evil does show up, um, when the sociopath does show up, when when the, the the cancer does show up, when those kinds of things do show up and the material wealth isn't going to cover that gap, what do you have? And again, we, we knock the Christian structures or we throw them away, but even doctors know this. Um, I've known people who have gone through cancer diagnoses. And one thing that even highly educated scientific materialist cancer doctors will tell you is, yeah, prayer works. Praying to a transcendent God works along with everything else we're doing. But even the doctor admits there's places I can't go. You're going to need something else that's out of my hands. That sort of humility is what's missing, I think, right now in our overall in our culture. And I think we need to move back towards that. Um, we need to move back towards that humility in order to get to where else it is that we want to go. Um, Do you think you can get there outside a religious structure? Yes, but I think it's infinitely harder. I think it's so hard. Um, as I said before, there's 315 million people in the United States. This podcast hits a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of that drop. How do you, how do you get there by yourself? Um, because think about it. If you're born into a family with a strong um, religious background, right? Let, let's not say Catholic because that, that touches on too many nerves. Let's say, <laughs> let's say Jewish, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. You're, you're born into a family with a strong Jewish background. Say what you want about Judaism, and I'll pick on Woody Allen here for just a minute. He lampoons Judaism all the time, and yet, and yet, that gave him a structure of discipline and humility that he's been able to use in his comedy for the last 70 years. Did it make him a more moral person? Well, those are second-order questions, not first-order questions. Did it give him structure? That's a first-order question. The answer, yeah. whether you like it or not, is yes. No, I think I think that that the potential is there, or or it is there to to give that structure, but that's not my question. Because what's needed is you, you need a certain tipping point, right, of people to agree with something in order for it to tip the right way. Yeah. Yep. So, and I don't know that with the numbers of people leaving the Christian faith, I don't know that that's the way that it's going to happen. So I have this discussion with plenty of people who are involved in the Christian faith, who are involved in building churches, planting churches, all that, um, outside of the Northeast, by the way, because where all of this is happening is outside the Northeast. So if you're in the Northeast, you're probably not seeing any of this. Right, right. You need to go to other places yeah. <laughs> and talk to other people. <laughs> and in other places with other people, stuff's going like hotcakes. But here's what's happening. It's not the churches that you and I grew up with. It's something that's much purer and much closer to um, the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament. Experiments are now happening, particularly in, 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 the, in the southwestern parts of America, 
um, around what does it look like to have small intimate churches, small intimate gatherings, family churches, home churches, things like that. That's a growing movement and has been for the last 25 years. Um, the big evangelical churches that people talk about and people lambaste the Jimmy Swagger to the Jerry Falwells, uh, for the uninitiated who don't know, and you may be one of those folks, that structure has been cracking apart for the last 10 years. Oh, big time. And it's, it's really uh, bringing a, a, a negative light onto all of Christianity. No, it's bringing a negative light onto big Christianity, but onto small Christianity. Small Christianity is doing just fine. Because what's happening is those people that go out from those structures as they crack apart, they don't go into going, they don't go into nothing. They don't go into just hanging out in their house on a Sunday. They get together with other like-minded people and they start a home church group. That's what they do. No, 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 no. It's, it's all still there. Remember I said we're in the midst of a turning, right? The cracking up of the church structures, just like the cracking of the political structures in the country is part of that turning. It's all part of it. It's all happening at one time, right? But again, if you're narrowly focused or if that's not something that interests you or that's something you maybe didn't put in your top 10 of things that have any, have any relevance. It's not in my TikTok right? feed. If it's not in your TikTok feed, right. <laughs> you, might not be, you might not be seeing it on your version of TikTok. I'm not. I'm not. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I'm, it's a very interesting conversation for me because um, I'm not seeing that. And of course, we're not going to see that. The media is not going to help us see that. No, uh, Hollywood's not going to help us see that. Um, and all we're seeing in the Northeast and, and other places where where Christianity isn't thriving, we're seeing the negative aspects. Um, how do we how do we get that out to the rest of the country and get that message? Yeah. Out? So that's a great question. And far beyond the ken of me to answer, um, particularly as we round the corner here on the podcast. But um, the way we get the message out is we actually have to go and look for things that are in unorthodox places. We have to we have to listen very carefully to unorthodox messages. And we have to follow people who, at least initially on the surface, may seem completely irreprehensible. Case in point. <laughs> case in point. I'm going to do a case in point here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there was a gentleman who ran a large church in New York City, wrote several books. Can't think of his name now. If I talk about it long enough, it'll come to me. Anyway, he passed away recently. Um, one of the, one of the listed, if you go on Google, he's listed as one of the, the top 10 theologians in the 20th to 21st century, right? Except his church won't survive past him. And toward, and in the last few years, he had kind of sort of started maybe theologically abandoning some things that he had been holding on to for the majority of his, of his career. Well, where do the people go in New York City who have been attending his church for 25 years? Some of them will stay in that church, but others, others will find like-minded individuals through social media, through the internet, just as every other group has, and they will begin to link with each other. 
and it will happen probably on Twitter first, but other places, and they will go into their own little subculture because the internet is a long tail tool, not a fat head tool. And many of the infrastructure pieces of philosophy and psychology of the 20th century, economics that were fat head things, mass things, like I said before, that's all breaking up. And the last gasps of those things are almost done. So how do you get the message out to the media? Well, like you said, the media isn't really quite interested because the, the media is going through its own massive breakup, <laughs> its own massive fathead breakup right now. Yeah. And so you actually have to search for those things. So for instance, if I wanted to go to a particularly reformed uh, Protestant church, uh, I got to go online and I got to go find it on YouTube. Those guys are all over YouTube. You just go find them. And they're streaming out their messages. They're streaming out their appeals. They're streaming out their worship music on YouTube every Sunday. As a matter of fact, COVID allowed more of them to do more of that than ever before. Church growth among COVID, uh, outside of the Northeast anyway, and out of California, church growth during COVID was gigantic, particularly online. Because now those smaller churches with pastors that aren't publishing books and aren't published in the New York Times and aren't in the Los Angeles Times and aren't part of the cool kids table. They're gathering people. This is happening because people want a framework for transcendence. And the Gen Zers, by the way, their framework is going to look totally different than the baby boomers did. And it's fine. It's fine. They're but they're going to have a framework. This is really interesting to me because it's a new perspective on how the Institute for Cultural Evolution and the framework that they've built uh, can kind of bring these discussions together. I'm kind of excited to, to have these discussions uh, from, from that perspective. Well, I think when you talk about, when we talk about meaning, right, like we have on this podcast, and we talk about man's search for meaning, and we talk about religion, um, I think that we have to be careful as leaders to not fall for seductive lies. And those seductive lies are the lies that pull us back into the idea of there being hopelessness or there being a philosophy of despair. I also think that we also have to avoid the seductive lies of it can't happen here, which is huge. Um, I think we need to avoid the seductive lie of scientific materialism, that it will solve all of our problems. I also think we have to fall, fall away from the seductive line of going along to get along. That's, that's very seductive. And that's how you get systems that are built, whether big or small, families, civic communities, schools, churches, colleges, I don't care. You, you, you've got people who go along with things that are patently not the truth. And you have to, people made a lot in the 20th, 20th century of telling truth to power, which has now become a cynical ploy because the very people who claimed to be telling truth to power now are part of the power structure. Yep. So I don't want to hear it. Right. And so telling truth means saying things that are absolutely true. And this goes back to that principle idea and saying them consistently. And this is part of the, again, part of the tussle and the struggle we're having in the United States that leaders can be a part of as we do, as we turn the corner on this third turning and go into, go into something else. 
I don't know what that something else will be. I'm not going to live long enough. That's going to be in the 22nd century. <laughs> but I think it'll be great. And I, I, I think that um, I'm cautiously optimistic. Because there's still room for it to go off the rails, but I'm cautiously optimistic. <laughs> yeah, there is. <laughs> But there's le every day that we every day that we have conversations like this, every day that we talk, every day that we engage, every day that we go out and get get meaning, every day that we fight against um, against lies, every day that we speak up as leaders, we are moving the path. We are moving on the path more towards uh, that, that. To paraphrase again, that sort of Star Trek worldview, right? We're moving more towards that and we're moving further and further away from a dystopian Blade Runner thing. I don't even say future, it's just a thing. And to Frankel's point, we don't know the future. The veil is, is pulled over our eyes. I'd like to thank J.P. Puchelou for coming on the podcast today. We didn't actually get through the entire book or all the parts <laughs> that I wanted to. But JP is pressed for time here. And so um, we'll put a pin in this conversation and uh, maybe we'll have JP back if he wants to come back next year. We'll we'll hit those last two beats in, uh, in Man's Search for Meaning and check in and see whether or not we've gone off the rails and we're in a dystopian ridiculousness in 2024 um, or, or whether there are more reasons for cautious optimism we'll have links to all the places that jp mentioned and all the projects that jp is working on below the player in the podcast uh and all the places where you pick this up so go and click on those and look for jp and look for all the projects that he's involved in and with that jp and i are out Listen and subscribe to the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on all the major podcast players that you listen to podcasts on, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and even Spotify. And please leave a five-star review if you like the show. We need those reviews to grow, and it's the easiest way to make sure that this show gets into the ears of the leaders who need to hear it. And of course, tell all your friends. If you want to get started on the leadership path, HSCT Publishing's products and services can help your team do that. Check out our training webinars, coaching services, and more at leadershiptoolbox.us. We also have a video-based subscription service, that's software as a service, that can help your team become better at the individual level. 60 modules on over 100 hours of video and written content for you at leadingkeys.com. That's leadingkeys.com. We've also got books that will help you and your team grow. Pick up a copy today of My Boss Doesn't Care, 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss, and subscribe to the Little Red Podcast I launched earlier this year with the same name as that Little Red Book. My most recent book is 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation of Intentional Leadership, co-written with contributions from Bradley Madigan. This is the book for right now that was written for leaders right now. Pick up a copy by heading over to 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. That's 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. 
you pay for shipping, and you'll get a copy of my second book as well. Finally, you can get all these books in paperback, hardcover, or as ebooks on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and any other place online you order books. Finally, HSCT Publishing is on YouTube. Like and subscribe to the video version of the Leadership Lessons for the Great Books podcast on the HSCT Publishing channel on YouTube. Just search for HSCT Publishing and hit the subscribe button. You'll get our weekly video updates, which is the video version of this podcast. And, of course, you're going to want to subscribe to my other podcast. That's right, I do do more than one. The Hayson Sorrells Presents Audio Experience, where I talk more casually with a broader range of people about all matters that matter in the world today, from arts all the way to analytics. All right, that's it for me.